So glad that you're with us. My name's Pete. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, really good to see you today. Uh, if you have a Bible, would you go ahead and grab it, and uh, we'll be in the book of Matthew, chapter 5. And uh, if you don't have a Bible or a, a Bible app, we'd love to uh, hook you up with a book. So just slip up your hand, and one of our ushers will uh, toss one your direction. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, then feel free to keep that as our gift to you. So um, Matthew chapter 5, and this morning we begin a new series through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the most <clears throat> famous, important, epic uh, set of Jesus' teachings that we have that have been passed down uh, to us now through uh, over the centuries and has been recognized as being this really central aspect of understanding um, Jesus' vision for the people that would come to follow him. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, we have this uh, socio-political vision, but at the same time, it's this vision that includes his idea for how his community of followers would order and share their lives uh, together. And so for the next two months, three, or uh, seven weeks at least, for the months of April and May, we're going to be journeying together uh, through Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And I am so excited uh, to do this together. Now, <clears throat> I'll pause for a moment and just uh, help get us oriented a little bit as a church um, in many ways, today starts the beginning of a new chapter at Antioch. And so uh, most of you know that uh, our founding pastor, Ken, uh, was called on by God uh, over the last couple months and is now serving as lead pastor of Village Church up in Beaverton. And uh, we've been talking regularly. They're enjoying their time, and it's going incredibly well. And so, um, so I stepped into this role at the beginning of last month, and um, many of you may be surprised to hear that this was never something that Ken and I had talked about or planned, even casually. It never came up, the idea that one day he may move on and I'd step into the role. And uh, on top of that, I actually found out three days before the rest of you guys that this was happening. And uh, I certainly don't mean that uh, in any way to disrespect or dishonor Ken. It, the situation that he was in and the ambiguity around the transition was such that uh, it just worked out that way. But all that to say, when the elders asked me if I'd be ready to step into this role, I said, absolutely, but I'm going to need a little bit of time and space to kind of wrap my mind around this idea of stepping into the lead spot here. And so, um, so they graciously agreed to give me the month of March as a time to step away from my daily responsibilities uh, as a pastor, as the one who leads the staff and running cohorts and teaching and doing the sermons for Sunday. And so we had a, a great uh, slew of folks that came in and, and led us during the month of March. And uh, in case you're wondering, like, was Pete just sitting on the beach with a margarita somewhere? Um, enjoying himself. Let me show you where I spent the month of March. <clears throat> this is John Lemke's woodshed. Uh, it's over behind the pizza place next to Pilot Butte, and um, that's the whole thing. I had a card table and a lawn chair, and every morning I would load up a, a wheelbarrow full of, of firewood, drive my kids to school, uh, drop them off and then come and spend from nine to five uh, sitting there by myself with no internet um, and no meetings, just a stack of books, a pot of coffee, and, 
and a time to listen, and a time to pray, a time to plan and try to discern what it is that God is saying uh, in regards to the next season of this church. And man, it was an incredibly life-giving month for me. And so I want to extend my gratitude again to the elders, but also to you as a congregation, because I know that's not actually the ideal way to make a transition of leadership, is to have your lead pastor take off and then your new lead pastor take off and go sit in a shed somewhere. Um, <laughs> But it was a gift to me, and I'm coming back with um, an incredible amount of clarity and insight and passion and excitement for uh, what God is doing here and the chance uh, to be your pastor. And I really am grateful for the beginning of this season. So, <clears throat> and great, grateful to the Lemkes as well. I highly recommend it if you need a place uh, to meet with God. Um, Here's one of the things that I was struck by in the shed, and it was, uh, we now have this common language, right? So I will refer now for 20 years to the shed moment, and you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, this is my 20th year as a pastor. I started this work uh, when I was 18 years old, back in Philomath, Oregon. And uh, this fall will be 20 years that I've been serving uh, in some pastoral role as a, as a full-time vocational minister, and um, one of the things that recently hit me, which you would think would be a very basic observation regarding the relationship between a pastor and their people, uh, is this, this basic observation. People get to choose their pastors, right? Um, each of you has a choice. If you're going to attend a church, what kind of church you're going to attend, which particular congregation you're going to be part of and connect to whose teaching you're going to sit under, whose leadership you're going to follow, uh, people, each of you, gets to choose your pastor. But pastors don't get to choose their people. And of course, we get to decide which church we're going to serve in and the role that we're going to play, but we don't get to choose who comes to that church or who the people are that would choose that church and become part of the congregation. So people get to choose their pastors. Pastors don't get to choose their people. And imagine if we could, that would be a very different dynamic, right? Like line up all the Christians in Bend and each of us pastors gets a first round pick and <laughs> go through it. I can't even imagine what that would look like. <laughs> it would be a mess, I'm sure. But here's what came to me in the shed. And um, every night, uh, Jen or I, kind of, we take turns tucking in our kids and uh, we have three, Emma, who's 10, Moses is eight, and Mila's six. And uh, when I'm tucking my kids in, I'll typically either read them a story or tell them a story, and then, um, and then I pray for them, and it's usually the, a similar prayer every night. Um, but before I pray, I have, I have this little thing that I say uh, to each of our kids, and I say it so regularly, they know it. Uh, they, could, they could tell you by heart, but it goes like this. So, for example, if I'm tucking in Mo, our eight-year-old, I would tell him, buddy, did you know that if I could line up all the little boys in the whole world and choose one to be my son, I would choose you every single time. I would choose you today, I would choose you tomorrow, I'd choose you the next day, and every day after that forever, I would always choose you. Did you know that? He goes, yeah, he knows that. They never get tired of hearing that. 
At least they're still young. Maybe they will one day. But even though they know the words I'm going to say, there is this kind of sweet, um, beautiful moment that I have with each of them every time. And it's important to me that they know that Jen and I love them and we would not just, we're not just tolerating them, but we would choose them if we had the chance. And so here's what I want to say to you this morning, Antioch. If I could line up all the churches in the world <laughs> and choose one to be <clears throat> the pastor, I would choose you every time. And I'm dead serious about that. No matter what, we feel like this is just an incredible opportunity to get to walk with you, this congregation, this family, as your pastor. And uh, why? Why would I choose you? Well, the same reason I would choose my kids. Because you are my gift from God. And I sincerely do receive this opportunity to be your pastor as grace. And I'm so grateful that you would choose me as your pastor and would choose to trust me and to learn from me and to be part of this thing that God's got us doing here. So thank you for that. And I'm excited for this new season. Sound good? All right. So as I said, we dive into the Sermon on the Mount. And this is uh, important to me that when we begin this new chapter together, this isn't about my vision or my ideas or my plans, but we go back to the one who's our ultimate pastor, our ultimate teacher, our ultimate Lord and Savior, Jesus himself. What is his vision? What is his plan? What is his heart and hope and prayer for his people? And so that's what we have in this incredible sermon that spans the chapters of 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew's gospel. And so my hope is that as a church, that over the next two months, we would come to really know this sermon and to understand it as well as we possibly can, that we would learn to love it, that it would start to flow through our veins, and it wouldn't seem obscure or remote or, or confusing to us, even though there are parts that are challenging my hope is that Jesus' words would begin to sink in and our minds and our lives and our affections would be reoriented around him and his vision for his kingdom. And so I could preach this whole thing much more quickly, but in these next two months, we're going to take it chunk by chunk and really try to understand the heart and vision that Jesus has uh, for his people. And so I want to back up just a little bit from where Meg read for us and go to verse 23 of Matthew chapter 4 and just kind of get a little bit of the context or the setting that Jesus is coming out of as he begins to deliver this famous sermon. So in Matthew 4, 23, it says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. 
Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Okay, we'll pause there now before we get into the red words. Um, Let me show you a map, because apparently to the author, it's important that the readers would sort of understand something about the geography of the Sermon on the Mount. And so here we have Israel, which by the way, next year, you can go here with me. We will go to these places, and uh, I think it's going to be amazing to so up here in the northern region is Galilee, as you can see, right? And this, we know Jesus spent a lot of his life in Nazareth and traveling around these areas, Capernaum, Tiberias, uh, the Sea of Galilee. And so this is where we're told that he's preaching, he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, he's healing people. And then the news begins to, to spread up in verse 24 up to Syria, right, up to this area. And then down in verse 25, the, the crowds are beginning to gather here in Galilee, and which what we need to know is that this would be a very Jewish place, a deeply religious, and maybe we might even say a a conservative culture, right? Very much committed to Torah, very much committed to the way and the story of the Jewish people. And so Galilee, where Jesus was doing so much of his teaching and ministry, his audience, the crowd that was following him, were these very conservative, religious, devout uh, Jewish people. Okay, but then we're told that also this area of the Decapolis, uh, crowds or people began to come from there as well. And so compared to the conservative religious Jewish environment, the Decapolis was, as you might hear by the sound, it's a Greek culture. Right? And so when you think about the famous uh, epic Greek culture with all of its mythology and all of its uh, architecture and all of its hedonism and that sort of thing. And so in a lot of ways, the Decapolis would be this more progressive, more liberal, more pluralistic kind of mythological following people. And so a very different crowd. It wasn't just religious conservative people that were interested in Jesus, but it was also these more progressive uh, Greek people as well. And then we're told he also had people coming from Jerusalem. So down here, and we all know Jerusalem as kind of the capital, as the cultural hub when it came to religion and politics, when it was kind of this urban center where uh, people were constantly coming to the big city, so to speak. And so it wasn't just kind of these rural regions or these Greek regions, but urban dwellers, city folk, people in positions of power and government and leadership, they were also making the trip up to Galilee. And then we're also told that people from Judea and the region it crossed the Jordan. And so down here, this whole kind of outskirts outside of Jerusalem and Bethlehem, but from the Judean wilderness and over here on the other side of the Jordan. So these are rural folk. These are people from little dumpy redneck Hickville sort of towns that you just kind of drive through. And in fact, Judea literally in the Greek is translated Prineville. You may not know that. (laughs) I shouldn't have said that. That's not funny. Kip, can you make sure that doesn't go online? Actually, they don't have internet in Prineville, do they? We'll be fine. So, I, I'm from Philomath, Oregon, right? I meet with God in a shed. I'm just teasing. Um, and so that's what the, the author is trying to communicate, that this, this 
kind of wandering, itinerant uh, Galilean rabbi known as Jesus was beginning to make waves in this entire region. And all different kinds of people were coming. The urban and the rural, the conservative and the progressive, the Jewish and the pluralistic or whatever they were. There's people, all different kinds that are coming. And then in verses 23, 24, we're kind of told even more about that subset. And I'm sure there were some rich, powerful, well-to-do, well-established, well-respected citizens that were gathering around Jesus. But most of the people that were coming are who? The sick, the suffering, those with diseases, those with pain, those possessed by evil spirits, those having seizures, the paralyzed. Amongst the crowds, these broken, hopeless, oppressed, ignored people are being brought to Jesus. And as he preaches the good news of God's kingdom, He's not just talking about it, but somehow he's actually enacting God's new world on earth. We talked about this last week on Easter. That vision of revelation where everything is made new again, where the world is as it should be, that's what Jesus does. He goes, in the kingdom of heaven, there's no sickness. There's no paralysis. There's no pain. There's no death. And so he's just turning things right side over. And so it's this beautiful, powerful momentous uh, thing that's happening. And people are starting to get incredibly excited. And so the crowds now, starting in chapter five, thousands, we don't know how many people, are pursuing him, they're, they're, they're listening to him, they're wanting to be healed by him. But then at the beginning of chapter five, the author, Matthew, says the crowds were there, but in verse one, his disciples came to him And he began to teach them. And so the way the author sets up the great Sermon on the Mount is that the disciples aren't just part of the crowd that's curious about Jesus or hoping that they'll get hooked up by Jesus' supernatural power in some way. But the author separates the disciples of Jesus from the crowd around Jesus. So now there's this clear distinction between Jesus' true disciples and everyone else that's just kind of loosely associated with his name. His disciples follow in his footsteps. They climb with him up the mountain. They cling to him. They listen to his words as those that have authority. And they obey him. The crowds are inspired by Jesus, are impressed by Jesus, are excited about the idea of Jesus. But disciples are reorienting their lives around this person and around his message of God's kingdom coming to earth. And that's how Jesus then begins this famous teaching that we know as the Sermon on the Mount. The name, the title of this sermon, Sermon on the Mount, was come up with, uh, come up with by uh, St. Augustine, 300-something years after Jesus. It took them that long to name this sermon. And do you know how he came up with it? It was on a mount, and it was a sermon. So he called it the Sermon on the Mount. Um, let me show you where this happened. 
what is now known as the Mount of Beatitudes. And once again, a year from now, we could be standing right here, looking over the Sea of Galilee, near the town of Capernaum. And uh, we don't know exactly, but this is the traditional site of the Sermon on the Mount. Up at the top is the Church of Beatitudes, which has this beautiful kind of nine-sided structure uh, with the nine sides representing each of the Beatitudes. And so chances are this would be kind of Jesus' view as he begins to teach, that he's climbed up this mountain and he's kind of away from a lot of the cities and the people are sort of down at the bottom, but his disciples, we're told, have climbed up the mountain with him. And so he's beginning to speak to his disciples and not just his original 12, but whoever that community of women and men would have been early on that were not just inspired or impressed, but were actually devoted and reorienting their lives. And so... The last thing I'd say by way of introduction is that at the very end of Matthew's gospel, um, we have what we know as the Great Commission. And it goes like this. It says, then the 11 disciples, by the way, this is like the week we're in after Easter, right? This is the story, where we are in the story. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Now, we don't know for sure, but we know that they're not in Jerusalem anymore, that they're up in the Galilee and he told them to meet, them, meet him at a certain mountain. Good chance we're talking about this same mountain where he gave the Sermon on the Mount. He says, go to the mountain, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. Right? He's risen from the dead, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Next slide. Therefore... He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Okay, so interesting. At the end of Matthew's gospel, we're back where Jesus had this huge moment early in his ministry. We're up in the Galilee, we're at the top of a mountain, it's Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and his disciples, and he's basically passing the baton. He's saying, I want you guys to finish what I've started. I want my mission now to become your mission. I want the way that I've come into the world to be the way I send you into the world. And so it's this vision of discipleship. It's the vision and the mission that he entrusts to these original disciples of saying, do for others what I've done for you. Live as a a citizen or a visitor from another place, from a new world. And I want you to teach other people the good news about who I am. And part of what Jesus says is that being a disciple is teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. What would they think of After three years of sitting under their rabbi Jesus, and he's going, everything I've commanded you, they're like, that's a lot of stuff to regurgitate. They're sitting there on the sermon on the mount place, most likely. And I'm convinced that this is what he's alluding back to. This sermon, this manifesto, this summary of the vision of the kingdom of God. He's going, that's what my disciples are to be all about. And so that's why this has been recognized as such an important 
piece of literature within our scriptures. This is Jesus' paradigm for life in his kingdom. And so we want to call our attention to it. And like I said, know it, love it, understand it, and ultimately not just be inspired by it, but let our lives be reoriented around it. So we would be those that truly could follow Jesus and not just hang in the crowd. Okay? So the chunk that Meg read for us this morning is very well known and familiar to many of us. It's known as the Beatitudes, which is a super weird word that really just means the blesseds, those who are blessed. And uh, I'm still recovering from a childhood First Baptist kids play where the Beatitudes were played by kids dressed up like bees that were having different kinds of attitudes. And it's amazing. I'm still a Christian, let alone a pastor. Um, Some of you know what that means. But uh, a lot of times when we think about the Sermon on the Mount, we think of this as a very hard set of teachings as a very high standard that God sets for his people, that if you're really going to be my followers, then here's your list of rules. Now, I do want you to encourage encourage you to read through this, and you're going to find that there are dozens of imperatives, that Jesus isn't just suggesting ideas, he is giving commands throughout this sermon. There's uh, 30 or 40 at least where he's like, this is how I want you to live. This is how my disciples are to order their lives. And so we get that part of it that, yeah, gosh, this sermon just feels really heavy, like I'm not even sure I'm a Christian if that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And what I want to uh, observe is that before we get to any of the commands, Jesus begins his sermon with the pronouncement of blessing. The Sermon on the Mount starts with blessings, not demands. Jesus blesses, gives, loves, empowers before he asks anything of us. Before he gives any instructions or orders, Jesus blesses. And as we read through the Beatitudes, even this set of of words, we can often mistake as a list of virtue. And basically saying, uh, reading into God's mind, that if you want to be blessed, here's the things that you need to do. So the first one says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we're going, well, I want to be part of the kingdom of heaven, so I need to become poor in spirit. Apparently that's a virtue or a characteristic that God values. And if we read it that way, as an if-then or a cause and effect, God saying, if you do this, then I'll bless you, then we're missing it. That's not what Jesus said. He is not listing virtues He is listing conditions that we find ourselves in. Now, remember who it is that's gathered around him. The sick, the oppressed, the suffering, the poor, the paralyzed, the hopeless, the rejected. You know what I think Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes? He's not saying, here's the kind of people I'm looking for. He's not doing his first round draft picks of who he wants on his team. Here's what he's doing. He's looking out over the crowd and he's taking role. 
He's going, I see you in your pain. I see you in your suffering. I know that you're hurting. I know that you're mourning. I know that you're being persecuted and oppressed. He's looking out with compassion. He's doing roll call. And he's hoping that each of his hearers, those that are poor in spirit, those who are mourning, those who are meek, those who are longing for a world other than the one we live in, he's pronouncing them blessed. Now, pronouncing is an interesting thing. It doesn't happen a whole lot in most of our everyday lives. The place where I get to pronounce is when, as a pastor, I have the privilege of doing a wedding. I've done over 100 weddings in the last 20 years, and I'm really good at it, just so you know. (laughs) At the end of the ceremony, the husband and wife exchange vows, and that, or the man and the woman exchange vows, and I get the privilege of saying, and now by the power invested in me as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I pronounce you husband and wife. There is something, at least our understanding of Christian marriage before God's eyes, there is something that happens in that moment. That when I pronounce them husband and wife, that there is a change in their identity and a change in their reality. That simply speaking those words, actually, we believe before God turns them in to something that they weren't before. Two souls become one. Okay? There's other places where this happens, in the legal system or other things, where a judge pronounces a verdict, or maybe even in sports where an ump calls a ball or a strike. It is whatever he says it is. There's a pronouncement. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's pronouncing these people blessed. He says they are blessed, and therefore they are. Now, here's what's so interesting. We use the word blessed a lot. And by the way, I asked Meg not to say blessed, which she wasn't going to anyways. I have no idea why we say blessed instead of blessed. It's it's just blessed. It sounds fancier, I guess, to say blessed. But you don't get dressed, right? You just get dressed. Um... We use the word blessed frequently. In fact, hashtag blessed, at least a few years ago, was kind of a thing you'd see on social media, right? Um, When you see hashtag blessed, what are you picturing? The good life, right? Whatever your idea of a great day or a wonderful moment is. I'm sitting around a fire with friends at St. Francis, or I'm on the slopes, or I'm having a wonderful meal with my, with my family, or I'm hiking through the woods, hashtag blessed, right? And um, that's good if we're recognizing the enjoyable moments of life as blessings from God. But is that how Jesus seems to understand that word? Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn the meek, those who hunger and thirst. Those aren't the images or moments in our life that we tend to hashtag blessed, right? And so apparently in Jesus' vision for a kingdom, his kingdom, he has this whole other paradigm. And we often, as as, uh, Protestant Christians, use the word blessed um, just to, to talk about when things are going really well when we're achieving our goals, when we're enjoying our life. 
If you own a business that's going well as a believer, you say, God's really blessed our business, right? If you have a big house and you're a Christian, you say, God's really blessed us with this big house. Now, I think all that's fine and all that's true, but we have to understand that the way we use that word is not the way Jesus uses it. And so I actually think there's a, a, better, a better way of understanding. Instead of simply saying blessed, I think a better word is graced. Others have translated it happy or flourishing, but I actually think that the closest word we have to connect with his idea of blessed is this idea of graced, or you could even say blessing equals salvation. Salvation, wholeness, flourishing, robust life, abundance. Not in all the ways that we want to hashtag, but in a way that transcends even life's worst moments and our poorest conditions. And so when Jesus says, you are blessed, here's what I think he's saying. God is with you. God is with you. In your poverty, in your mourning, in your loss, in your pain, in your confusion, in your oppression, in your sadness, in your darkness, in your doubts, and in your struggles, Jesus says, be blessed. God is with you in those places. As he looks out over this crowd of beggars, of those that are crippled and lame and sick and suffering and ignored, God is with you. God is with you. You are blessed. God is with you. Blessed means graced, that God is pouring his life into these people. And so the idea is not that this is a list of rules we would follow or virtues or characteristics that we would strive to attain, but it's simply Jesus announcing the good news that he is with those who are vulnerable and hurting and suffering. And therefore, what he is offering or even what he is promising is not to fix our lives, not to make everything better, not to change our circumstances, not to hook us up with what we call the good life. He never promises that. What he promises is himself as the only one who can satisfy our hearts, as the God who will enter into our pain and suffering our loss, our grief, our confusion, and our doubt, he says, I will meet you there. I will be with you. You are blessed. So what's interesting is I had an experience of this firsthand in the shed last month. And I want to tell this story briefly, but I really went into my time in March as this major opportunity for reinventing myself. I had this month set aside for a Pete Kelly self-improvement plan. Extreme makeover, Pete Kelly edition. 
And I'm like, I'm going to come back in April and I'm going to be this whole new man, right? I'm going to be 20 pounds lighter and I'm going to be confident and decisive and well-spoken. And I'm just going to like have this incredible presence and power about my ministry. And man, Antioch's going to be so impressed and all these people won't believe. New and improved Pete 2.0. So I go to the shed right? (laughs) And begin this plan. And I can't remember what triggered it, but about day three or day four, I had this realization as I was sitting with God, as I was uh, in prayer and scripture, reading, studying, contemplating, at some point it it just kind of struck me and came into my mind. No, still just Pete. (laughs) Still just this guy. (laughs) And he's learning, and he's growing, and God's not done with him yet, but there is no 2.0. There is no new and improved. And just like you, I was disappointed to hear that, Um, and really thought that in that month, I could be this whole new man, that like Moses coming down from the mountain, you know, with the glory or something like that. Um, It was an incredible gift where God, early in that month, was able to convey my love and my affection, my acceptance and my affirmation over you is not just based on who you're going to be one day or my sanitized, grown-up, I've felt like I heard God saying, I love this guy, this dude from Philomath, Oregon. I choose him. Every time. (laughs) Do you know what that feeling is when you're like, oh, shoot, I thought I was going to be some new amazing version of myself, but I guess it's just this? Do you know what I would call that? I'd call that poor in spirit. (laughs) I'd call that realizing I have nothing to offer God. I have nothing to present to him to show him how hard I've been working or how much I've suffered for him or how much I've been trying to be good and new and improved. I literally am impoverished in spirit. I'm just like, sorry, this is, this is all you got, man. This is all I have to offer. Just Pete. That was a blessed moment for me where I felt God's love, affirmation, and acceptance over me in a way that set the trajectory for my whole month in the shed, where I'm not trying to prove myself to God or to you or to anyone else, but simply sitting in the loving acceptance, the warm embrace and affirmation of my Father. Now, I'm not saying go become poor in spirit. I don't know how you can do that. But when you find yourself in those places, you're blessed. And so I want to close this morning by doing what I think Jesus was trying to do. Or by trying to do what I think Jesus was doing would be a better way of saying that. I want to speak these beatitudes over you, Antioch, as blessings. And if there's something going on here where we're not just trying harder to be better disciples, But as he said in that great commission that surely he will be with us to the end of the age, that the life he calls us to is a life that he, by his spirit, empowers us for. And so as your pastor, I want to start this new season and close our time this morning by speaking these blessings over you based on Jesus. 
to the poor in spirit, to all of you who struggle in your faith, all of you who have doubts or dilemmas related to the Christian teachings, to those who struggle, who feel like you're running on empty, who feel like you're faking it. You're blessed. Jesus is with you. To those who mourn, to all of you who are brokenhearted, who are stricken by grief, whose sadness is deep and whose pain is real, you are blessed. Jesus is with you. To the meek, to all of you who feel powerless or oppressed, who feel you've been ignored by the world or pushed to the sidelines, who feels like no one's listening to you, you are blessed. Jesus is with you. To those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, to all of you who long for what is right, who crave justice, whose hearts break for the pain and brokenness of this world and who are overcome. You are blessed. Jesus is with you. To the merciful, to all of you whose hands are full with other people's messes, who are carrying burdens for others, who give and give and give until you have nothing left to give, you are blessed. Jesus is with you. To the pure in heart, for all you whose honesty makes others uncomfortable, who refuse to wear masks and pretend to be something that you're not. To all you who are learning to authentically be the you God made you to be, you are blessed. God is with you. And to the peacemakers, for all the middle children of the world, who get it from both sides, who have laid aside your own rights and disadvantaged yourself for the sake of harmony, who choose to forgive and live at peace with those who have hurt you. You are blessed. Jesus is with you. And finally, to the persecuted. For all of you who have been mocked by your friends for your faith in Jesus, for those who have been rejected by your family, or lost your job, or been dumped, or divorced because you chose Christ. You're blessed. Jesus is with you. Now how can we say with such confidence that Jesus is blessing hurting, broken, disadvantaged people with his presence and with his life? Because ultimately, these Beatitudes describe Jesus. Think about that. Jesus was poor. Jesus mourned. Jesus was meek. Jesus hungered and thirsted for righteousness. Jesus was merciful. Jesus was pure in heart. Jesus was a peacemaker. And Jesus was persecuted because of his righteousness. 
to the point of death. Death on the cross for you and for me and for the sins of the world. And so in his great love, Jesus becomes all of these things, not just as, a, as any old human, but joining among the least of these, the broken, the impoverished, the suffering, the hurting. And he enters into the pain and suffering of humanity, not so that we don't have to walk through pain and suffering, but so that when we do find ourselves in seasons of loss, grief, doubt, and pain, we can meet Jesus in those places. That is the gift. That is the blessing. That no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're grieving, no matter what you're struggling with, Jesus has been there and promises to meet you there. If you will come to him. And so that's what we do here on Sunday mornings. We come to Jesus together. That's what this is all about. Not just pretty songs and a sermon, but actually a chance to come to Jesus together, to commune with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we will invite you to come to the table, to take the bread and the cup, to take it into yourself, to receive the blessing, the presence, the grace, the salvation of Christ again. Will you stand with me and pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have chosen us, that you have loved us, that you have accepted us, that you have graced us, that you have saved us and are saving us. It is an incredible honor to be those chosen and loved by you. And we thank you that you meet us in our pain, in our suffering, as well as in the pain and the suffering of the world around us. We thank you that this gospel of your kingdom is way bigger than anything that can be contained in a hashtag or our paradigm of the good life but you have given all of yourself to all of us in the way that our hearts need the most. You and you alone are the one who can truly bless us, not with stuff, but with yourself. And so we come this morning poor in spirit, nothing to offer, nothing to prove, nothing to show, but with empty hands, hunger, hungry and thirsty for you. Will you pour your life into us again this morning that we may join you in what you're doing in the world for your glory in Jesus' name.